Exactly two weeks ago, I stood right here on this very platform, and at the end of the service, I brought up my brother, my friend, John Maxwell. Were you here? And I did that for a couple of reasons. I brought John up, number one, because I wanted us to pray for him. John had just lost his mom. His mom, John is 72, by the way, and his mom was just a couple of months shy of being 101 years old before she passed. And I wanted to pray for John. I'd mentioned him in the sermon that day. I thought it'd be good to pray for him. I also wanted to invite you, uh, his church family, to Come with us to watch him in his play, his one-man act, Me and My Shadow, his depiction of Judas Iscariot that was out a couple of Friday nights ago um, out at Church of the North Shore. A few of you went. I went. It was great. And I tell you about John today because after that play um, a week ago Friday night, he asked for 15 minutes of my time. Now, let me ask you, how silly is that? Have you ever asked me for 15 minutes of time? When have I ever met anybody for 15 minutes, right? John's a talker, I'm a talker. We spent about an hour and a half together, and we talked about his decision not to go with our team to Cambodia. Many of you know, some of you are praying. We've got a team of folks from Fondren Church in Cambodia today for the next 10 days or so, ministering there with one of our partners, the Hard Places community. And John had paid his money, was, had decided to go, and then with the loss of his mom, the busyness with the play, his desire just for some rest, we processed together his decision not to go. He said, Robert, should I go with the team or stay here and rest and finish writing the play Buck Naked for Jesus? We need to pray about that one, don't we? I think you should go, John. I think you should go. John decided not to go. We left the coffee shop that day. I don't know if he values my opinion or not, but he decided not to go. And I was out last Sunday, and I understand we prayed for our team. And John didn't come up with the team to be prayed over. He stood in a pew, and he felt guilty. That's what a lot of you do on Sunday, right? You sit in a pew and just feel guilty. Well, John was feeling that weight, and by last Sunday night, he texted me, and he said, the hounds of heaven won't leave me alone. I'm going to Cambodia. And I was so excited for John to, to make a decision to go and then decide not to go and then to decide again to go. And then our team left out of here, I believe, on what day was it? Thursday. And we were excited for them. Their flight path was Jackson International Airport. I never get that, by the way. Jackson International Airport to Dallas, Dallas to Seoul, Korea, Seoul, Korea, into our partner city of Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Little did we know that John's passport, listen, was not expired. In fact, it was, as I understand it, a month or two from expiring. But Cambodia has some new weird law that if your passport is that close to ex expiring, it's no good. I don't understand that. I feel like somebody's to blame. We should be mad at somebody. But they prevented John from getting on the plane in Dallas. Bummer. Could you imagine being in his situation and the, the team gets on the plane? I guess they wave goodbye to him. And John had to wait. Now... We were back here in Jackson. We were upstairs on the third floor. We got the news. I called my friend, Senator Josh Harkins. Always call a string, like pray, right? And then call a string puller, right? Call someone who has connections. I said, Josh, hey, you're a senator. Can you call Harper's office? Can we call Dallas? Can we get a passport? Can they do something? You know, even if it's fraudulent, can we do something online? It's just, it's just a technicality in the name of Jesus. Can we lie to get our boy, uh, John Maxwell? He's 72, uh, the frail body and soul that he is. Can we get him there? And I really, honestly, all joking aside, I couldn't imagine his disappointment because those type of things, they do make your faith falter, don't they? It's not a car accident or a cancer, but it's one of those things where you have plans and it doesn't work out. And we prayed and we prayed and I think some strings were pulled. And I don't know if it was the strings that got pulled or just him doing due diligence to go to the passport office in Dallas, but he waited in Dallas probably 48 hours. 
And no kidding, y'all, Jeff Hightower and I got a text 15 minutes ago to say John has arrived in Phnom Penh. Isn't that great? But isn't it true that life can be just like that? We're in a summer series called James All Summer. We've been walking through, our teaching team is helping you walk through this great book. It's so full of practical wisdom. And we are today going to be confronted with this idea of we have to be careful when we talk about what we're going to do, when we make plans, when we have a connecting flight, when we're trying to get somewhere, because we ultimately don't know that destination. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 4. In a couple of minutes, we'll put it up on the screen. James chapter 4, verse 13 to 16. Our brother Nick Crawford wrote down the first 12 verses, I believe, of James chapter 4 last week. And we'll look in just a moment at James 4, 13 to 16 about your future, your plans, your hopes and dreams and aspirations, the things that you're thinking about when you think about tomorrow. A little background certainly doesn't help by way of reminder for some of you, but James was written by the half-brother of Jesus. He writes it to a people persecuted. They were on the move. They were oppressed. They had to flee. They were, were being mistreated. Have you ever had to flee? The answer probably should be yes if you're obedient to the Bible because it tells us often to flee from temptation. I would say I flee a lot in that respect, but if I ever had to flee my home, I can honestly say no. I've never been a people in exile. I've struggled at times to pay the rent or mortgage, but I've never had to flee my home. And these were people on the move. And they were tired, weary, wilted, worn out. They were ready to give up. And James writes this letter of wisdom, this letter saying, endure, because there is a crown of life. If you endure, there's this beautiful crown of life. In order to endure, you have to embrace and flesh out some paradoxical truths, joy, in suffering, strength in temptation, wisdom in confusion. James can hit us hard, can't it? I've heard from some of you just the Spirit's conviction in your life as you look at this letter because it's so pertinent to who you are and where you are. Today, James gets in our business about our tomorrows, about our plans. What are your plans? What, what do you think when you think about tomorrow? What's your schedule? James chapter 4, let's read it. Come now, that's a, by the way, that's a historic translation of come on, man. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Let me ask you, what about your tomorrow? What are your goals and what are your plans? Do you have anything written down? When it comes to our plans, there really, are, there really is a couple of kinds of types of people in the world and in this very room. There are people who have their ducks in a row. There are other people who have ducks. They're just not sure where they placed them. Some people like things to be organized, orderly, and predictable. Some of us, I say us, like things to be spontaneous, unplanned, unpredictable, unexpected. 
If you ever gone shopping, I did recently, I went on a vacation and we had someone who was, you know, had their ducks in a row and you go to a shopping mall with them, even on vacation, it's like storming the beaches of Normandy, right? They have a specific mission and timetable. They run reconnaissance. They know what they're doing that kills people like me, right? Some people are daydreamers. That's it. Some people, when it comes to tomorrow, just have daydreams. Their mind drifts and they think about what could be. Some people have spreadsheets. It's a 5, 10, 15-year plan. What happens when a spreadsheet person meets a daydream person? They get married, right? <laughs> and I'll tell you here at Fondren, I, I think it's safe to say, Jeff, I'm a daydreamer and our executive pastor, he's a spreadsheet. There's different kinds of people. But irregardless of how God has made you and who you are, we all have some thoughts about tomorrow. What are yours? Maybe your thoughts of tomorrow are, I'm going I'm to get that corner office. I'm going to land that dream job. I'm going to build my dream home. I'm going to live in a tiny house. I think we all should live in a tiny house, right? Little tiny pink house for you and me. What are your, maybe your goal, your plan, your hope for tomorrow is to get married or to stay single. Maybe grandchildren are in the mix. But you read James 4 and it can be easily misinterpreted. You could read James 4 and someone, if you're built like me, you could go, yeah, see there, don't make plans for tomorrow. Just daydream. Put your spreadsheet up. Just let your mind drift and let's see what could be. Be spontaneous. Let life be unexpected, unplanned, unrehearsed. That's the way God intended. Look at James 4. But I want to say, don't misinterpret what God wants to say to you today through this passage. James 4 is not saying don't plan. In fact, God has created all of us, even though we vary greatly, he's created all of us to dream and to plan. There is something built in you to hope and to think about tomorrow. What is it in you? What do you hope for? When you were little, you had it made. Think about the progression of life. When you were five, you wanted to be 11. When you were 11, you wanted to be 16. When you were 16, you wanted to be 25. When you were 25, you wanted to be 29. When you were 29, you wanted to be 25. <laughs> you had it made, didn't you? When you were a little kid, you had a grown-up to, to look out for your every need. You had a personal bodyguard, a personal chef, a chauffeur. You could cry and whine and act like a baby and the world you found revolved around you. Now when you cry and whine and act like a baby, the world runs from you, right? But in you, there is something built in you. You went from crawling to walking to running and you and I, we've been running ever since. We've been running toward ambitions. God has given that in you. Now we have to be careful, James says in chapter three, we have to guard ourselves against bitter jealousy and selfish ambitions. But God has given you in your spirit, an ability, a capacity to dream, to think about a preferred future. That's why we're built, in a, the human spirit is built to grow and adapt and learn and discover and accomplish and produce. Scripture tells us, I believe it with all my heart, that God created us and he created us and he said to us when he created us, he created us in his likeness after his image and he said what? Fill the earth, increase, subdue the earth, rule over it, raise families, make communities, lead societies, build cities. In other words, don't just sit there. Don't live your life 
on the sidelines. God has given you dreams and he wants you along with those dreams to live according to a plan. I believe that. In fact, if anyone thinks that James 4 is saying don't plan, consider Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 and 8. Good passage to write down if you're a note taker. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. It says, go to the ant, O sluggard. If anybody has called you lazy lately, consider Proverbs 6, 6 to 8. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It has neither ruler or overseer or authority, but what does it do? It stores its provisions in summer and it gathers its food in the harvest. Do you get that? It's self-motivated. Some of us, we need somebody to oversee us, to rule over us, to be an authority to tell us what to do and when, to crack the whip, right, to move ahead. Some of us are not self-motivated, but go to the ants. It doesn't have any of that, but it looks ahead. It plans ahead. Planning is good. Jesus taught in Luke 14 when he was teaching a parable about counting the cost. You businessmen and women will appreciate this. He said, if you're going to war or building a tower, do you not sit down first and what? And you count the cost. Do you have what you need? This may seem a little random, but look at Romans chapter 15. I was looking at Paul and the life that he lived and just the planner that he was, his ambition. Right before this, he says, my ambition, my dream is to preach the gospel where Jesus has not been preached. But now, this is in Romans 15, but now that there's no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan, there's the word, I plan to do so when I go, go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey. Thereafter, I have, there, after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For it is the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings. They owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. You see, I believe as I look at the life of Jesus and Paul and others, I don't think James has given us today in chapter 4 a little phrase that we say, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, I don't think it's necessary to tack that phrase. I think it's good. I think Southern folks say it a lot, right? Say it. I green light you to say that, but I don't think that's what James is about. Not a tag phrase, an addendum to every sentence, to every plan you might have. Paul didn't say it here, did he? He said, I'm going to go to Spain. And Paul realized that he had ambitions. If you read all of chapter 15, you'll see in, in, in this chapter in Romans 15, that he had an ambition, a dream, an aspiration. He also talks about being hindered. Being hindered because plans, even those, even when you're working for the Lord, quote unquote, plans get hindered, doors get shut. And Paul's talking about those doors that have been shut and the doors that are opening, what he hopes to do. And he says, I plan to come there. I plan to be there. I will be there. It's good to plan. It's good to make I will statements. But here's what I want to encourage you in today, what I believe James is teaching, the heart of it is this, that you and I cannot afford to play God. It's not good. We transgress. We go overboard when we get into a place of playing God. Consider, I did a little outline here, James chapter 4 and verse 13. Consider these very ideas here. We play God when we set, when you, you play God when you set your own schedule. Notice the phrase in verse 13, today or tomorrow. Or when you select your own path, 
We will go into such and such a city. Or you place your own limits. We'll spend a year there. Or you arrange your own activities. We will trade or conduct business. Or you predict your outcomes. We will make a profit. Here, you see that. Plan and dream and make declarations about what you believe God has for you in your future. But be careful not to play God. On October 3rd, 1932, Game 3 of the World Series, Babe Ruth and the New York Yankees had previously won Games 1 and 2. And legend has it, Babe Ruth walked up to the plate that day. He'd already hit a home run in the game. And I think this was his third or fourth time up in the seventh inning. And he pointed, legend has it, he pointed to the fence as I'm pointing now. And he said, or legend has it, that's where the ball is going. As I'm going to hit this ball into the, y'all want to be real careful. As I hit this ball into the balcony now. Oh. Got it. I prayed so hard for that sermon illustration <laughs> that it would reach the balcony on one shot. You okay, Sarah? Yeah. She works for the church. Isn't that great? <laughs> Legend has it. Guys, you know this story, right? Legend has it Babe Ruth pointed. Now, here's what's true about the story. He pointed and he hit the home run. In fact, Lou Gehrig was there at home plate. I did a lot of research on this. I know some of you are going to come after me after this illustration, but I did a lot of research, even talked to a couple of guys this week. But as I have come to understand this story, Babe Ruth didn't really do that. He really didn't point and declare that he was going to hit the ball out of the park, that it's a legend, it's a fable, that the evidence suggests all these years later it was just a made-up story. But isn't there something in us, something in you that just loves that? That idea of, I'm going to do this, I will, right? And you, you say what you're going to do, and then you deliver. Like, that kind of stuff, it just inspires us, doesn't it? I'm going to do this. But we get into the role of playing God. It's a dangerous place to be when you and I violate James 4, 13. And y'all, it's why we need his wisdom. When we play God and set our own schedule, select our own path and place our own limits and arrange our own activities and lastly, predict our own outcomes. If you've lived long enough, you realize how foolish that last one is, right? If anything I've learned in ministry, in parenting, in marriage, friendship, as an older man, not old but older, I've learned that I can't predict or control outcomes. And I would have loved to hit that ball up in the balcony where I pointed. But here's the thing about that Babe Ruth story. I don't think it was true, number one. And number two, the greatest hitters in the history of baseball get a hit about three times out of ten. They say it's the hardest thing to do in sports, to hit a major league pitch. The greatest of all time hit three out of ten. There's something about that sport that humbles people. And there's a lot about life 
that can humble us. So we have to be careful in playing God. And James gives us a couple of, I think, key ideas in this very text to help us not play God. To be free from that. To be free from setting our own schedule, selecting our own path, placing our own limits, arranging our own outcome, arranging our own activities, and predicting our own outcomes. The first word I want to give you is the word humility. And it's this. James says, you do not know. Look down if your Bible is open or your phone's open. What does it say? You do not know what? Talk to me. Talk to him or I'm swinging again. <laughs> I'm picking up the bat unless you tell me. I mean, it's your, your call. You do not know what tomorrow brings. You don't know. And there is this invitation to humility. I was reading this week from Pastor Matt Chandler of the Village Church in Texas. And he talks about a couple of things that, that keep us humans or ought to keep us humans humble. And one is the body of Christ. It's the people around you. There's, there's people around you and God put them in your life in order for you to learn humility. That's tough, isn't it? That makes you want to be bitter toward the person you're sitting next to. But God puts people in our lives to to create humility in us. Consider Romans 12. I know a lot of you know this passage. It's about the body of Christ. Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 20. Do we have that? I'll talk about it until we can put it up, if we can put it up. But it talks about we are the body of Christ. We're one body, okay? And in that body, we have ears and we have eyes and we have hands and we have feet. And no part of the body is more important than the other. Some of you are eyes, some of you are ears, some of you are hands, some of you are feet. But nobody, listen, nobody is everybody. Nobody possesses it all. What do you know? James asked. He asked us that question so that it would produce humility in our lives. And here's what we need to know. We need to know that we need others. In Psalms, chapter, we don't have Romans 12, I guess. Yeah, here we go. I see it on that screen. I just don't see it on these screens. Uh, we got the wrong text. That's okay. Let's see if we have Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8, verses 3 to 4. This is David. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Just like you, if you can put away the screen, the tablet, the phone, and you can walk outside away from city lights and neon lights and you look up, it can and it will. If you're open, it'll do a couple of things. It'll inspire awe and it'll create humility. And David is saying, what is man? When I look at what you've made, what is man? I'm so little. I'm a speck of dust. You've made me and you care for me. Later, he goes on to talk about man. That is men and women. We are the crown jewel of his creation. And he is mindful of us. Looking at the body of Christ, looking at the starry host, looking at his created order around us in, the, in people, knowing our limits and knowing what he's created gives us that sense, I think, that James is referring to. Of we're so limited. We're just so limited. God is bigger than me, and I need other people. You're not everybody. You need others. And look what he's made. 
how small you are in comparison, but how beautiful and mindful of you he is. Daniel chapter 4 gives us a story about the great Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. While he was walking on the roof of his royal palace, he said these very words. He said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Who would speak so arrogantly? Right? Well, if you're walking on the roof of your royal palace, you might. Right? When things are going your way, when you put your creative hands to something, your mind to something, your heart into something, and it flourishes and blossoms and becomes something that others admire and appreciate and talk about, it's easy for you, it's easy for me to say, oh, look what I have built. But compare this lack of humility with what Paul expressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? You're blessed. Do you have good things? Do you, have you discovered your gift and you're deploying it for God's service or others appreciating that? Are you making a contribution to the larger world in which you live? You've received that. That's a gift. You're not different than anybody else. And here in James chapter 4, after he asks this question, after he invites us into humility, he goes on to say a couple of verses later about boasting and arrogance and the lack of humility. It reminds me of 1 John chapter 2 when John says, do not love the world or the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and listen, the boastful pride of life. Those things do not endure. We got to be careful. While God wants us to dream and to make plans, we have to be careful not to play God. We need to be invited into a walk of humility. The second thing that he gives us here that I want to bring to you is not beyond humility. It's brevity. What is your life? He makes a declaration with humility. You do not know. You don't know. And here he asks a question. What is your life? So if someone asks you, hey, did you go to church? They say, yes, what'd you learn? You can say, I learned that I'm ignorant and my life is like a vapor. What is your life? The ESV that we read from, it says it's a mist. Other translations, it's a vapor. It's smoke. Now, this might be hard to do in the heat of July and the room's a little warm today. My apologies there. But picture, take your mind outside of this warm room on a real hot day and picture yourself on a cold, freezing winter day. And you breathe. You can see your breath. But then it's gone. And James is saying that that is your life. Years ago when we lived in California, I had a clock radio by my bedside. And I would in the early morning when it would come on, I'd hit the snooze several times. And I would listen to a local DJ give traffic, very, very frequent traffic and weather reports. Now, when you live in San Diego, the weather is really boring, right? It's going to be 70 and sunny, no humidity, just boring. Same weather every day, year round. But the traffic, always interesting. 
never boring, always something to hear. And one morning I remember hearing, be careful, avoid the 605 North. There's been a fatal accident on El Camino Norte. And I thought as I, and that, that announcer went on to other traffic and weather updates. And I lay there in my lethargy and slumber and I thought I got a little philosophical. I didn't get out of bed. I just got philosophical. And I thought, this man probably didn't have a chance to kiss his wife say goodbye to his kids. And little did he know that he was having his last few minutes on earth. He was mentioned incidentally. His life was mentioned because he had caused a traffic snarl. We're here. We're here just for a little while. God invites us to not play God. You can't set your own schedule. You can't select your own path. You can't engage in your own activity and place its own limits and predict its outcome because tomorrows can be thwarted. Your tomorrow and my tomorrow, it can be thwarted. Let me tell you my schedule tomorrow. I'll spend a few hours alone, privately in a study Because I've learned after a few years, the rhythm for me is Mondays is when I need to get ready for the following Sundays. I'm not fully prepared, but I want to emerge Monday with a good outline because on Monday mornings I wake up and I've got that inner voice and I'm critical about the Sunday before or I'm just in a zone thinking about what was preached and where we're going next. And it's just a good rhythm for me to push aside and to study usually for about four hours. And tomorrow after that, I'm going to have lunch with, after that four hours, I've got three appointments, lunch with our executive pastor. And then I've got a meeting with a young guy who just graduated Reformed Theological Seminary. He's married. He just had a baby. They named their baby Judah Calvin. Do you think he's Reformed? They're going to go to Salt Lake City. That's his plans. I'm going to go to Salt Lake City. We are to plant a church. He wants to meet and talk about that. Then there's someone in our community that wants to meet with me after that to talk about foster care and the number of kids waiting in foster care and the role that Fondren Church can play. That's my four hours of study, my three appointments. Then I'll probably wander up to the third floor and I'll pick up and I'll paint and I'll look at the staff. And since I'm the boss, I'll probably point. That's what bosses do, right? We're building out as best we can a third floor office space as we move from the second floor to make room for our children's ministry. And I hope in the midst of that to spend a little bit of time with my family. I'd like to get a run in. I'd like to read independent of preparing for a sermon. I'd like to sit in a chair with my Bible opened up and hopefully my heart and mind open up. That's what I would like to do. Those things are on my schedule. Those are the things that I want to do. That's my tomorrow. What's yours? But here's what I want to say to you. It can change just like that. And I've learned being a pastor, you, you guys teach me this, that I need to be not only accessible but interruptible. But so do you. So do you. And your tomorrow, or this brief flight you have, it could change like that. Closing out this section of James, it says, For him who knows what to do and does not do it, for him it is sin." Now, that's an interesting part of this passage, I think. I I get it. It sounds like James, right? 
Because James is big on action. He, remember chapter one, don't just be like the man who looks in the mirror and then forgets and goes and does nothing about it, but do something about what you hear. So it sounds like James, all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is a sin, but it just seems ill-fitting. And then I began to think as I read and studied it this week, here's where I landed. Here's where I think James is going. James is saying that if we assume we have unlimited tomorrows, that we'll, we'll lose a sense of urgency and we'll delay doing the right thing. All through James, he tells us stuff that we need to do. And honestly, I'm your pastor probably, and my sins, not probably, are many. And in a way, the book of James can crush me. And I look at my life and I think, am I finding joy in suffering? Am I finding strength in temptation? Am I finding wisdom in all the confusion that's in my head? Is my religion, is it legitimate? Is it a genuine faith? And does it go toward uh, the poor, the orphan, and the widow? Is it undefiled or am I just like the world? What do I do with my tongue? In fact, Nick might have touched on this last week. I hadn't listened to your sermon yet. But verse 11 and 12, it says, don't speak against your brother. Let's just consider that. Don't speak against your brother. I did a little study, those phrases in the Bible this week through Nave's topical study. Speak against your brother. Do you know that Aaron and Miriam spoke against Moses? The people of Israel in the wilderness complaining, they spoke against God. The psalmist says that only a wicked person speaks evil against his brother, slandering him with lies. Job's friends spoke evil against him. First Peter, talking about the early church, which also was going through persecution, said that there were people speaking against those early Christians and slandering them as evildoers. It's pretty clear, right, that we ought not to speak against our brother. When James says this in chapter 4, he's saying, hey, here's, here's, here's part of the story of Scripture. We ought not to speak against one another. James chapter 3, you'll remember it. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Now, you know that. But if you know it and don't do it, that is sin. How you doing? Petty, negative, gossipy. Do you ever speak evil against somebody? Do you make other people's business your business? I've been guilty. To know the right thing and not do it, it is sin. Can't James just crush you with all this wisdom? But what I love is there's an answer, and that answer is in Jesus. In fact, in chapter 5, we'll look at it later, but he says that we ought to live in community. And that the answer to the crushing weight of sin when we're guilty is we do this. We say, sorry. This is what we say. And if it flows from the heart, if it's not a board game, it's not something silly that we're doing or just trying to get out of trouble. But if our heart is broken by where our life is, where what we know is not what we do, and the gap is great, and sin is alienating us, From God and others, we say, sorry. James 5 says, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. I want you as we close to bow with me.
I'm going to lead us as we pray.